Good morning. Uh, if you'll turn with me to Luke chapter 2. We'll be in Luke chapter 2 today. For those that don't know, my name is Jimmy Fowler. I'm the executive pastor here at Redeemer. It's my joy and privilege to, to be with you again this morning. It's been a few months since I've been able to stand before you, so I'm really, really excited uh, to be here with you this morning. Looking at Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 21. Though we'll just kind of really float around at a couple verses there. I'm really, really excited to be with you. I'm also really excited for other things, such as uh, they're doing a fourth installment of The Matrix. Anyone excited for that? The fourth installment? Yeah. Fourth, fourth. Here's what I'm really excited about is back, you know, when the movies first came out, there were all these illustrations and analogies that youth groups and children's ministry used. And now I get to use them all over again, right? There was like, oh, just like Neo, just like Neo was reborn and he came to know what real life is. You too can know eternal life by being reborn in Christ, you know? Or they'd have like, instead of the altar call, come on forward, they'd be like, there's this red pill and this blue pill. You know, one is going to just send you back out into the world. Now the other, though, is going to show you what real life is like, what the real world is. And there's, you know, others like, oh, you know, so remember how Neo, his eyes, he couldn't see, it was really bright for him, you know? It's because his eyes were never really open. He never used them. For those of us in Christ, though, we have this light of the world that has shown, and we have received that light. Now we will shine that light. Or just like Neo would go back into the matrix to save others and to share the gospel, like what the real world's like, we too are called to go to a lost world that doesn't know any better and share the good news of Jesus. All these things, all these illustrations were just used over and over again. And now they're making a comeback because Matrix 4 is coming back. So that, that I'm excited for. But if you watch The Matrix, you know it's nothing. It was, I mean, it was a great film. There was some originality, but it's, it's really based off of uh, uh, Plato's Allegory of the Cave. Anyone know about that? Plato's Allegory of the Cave, right? It's really based off that. Right? And so for, for those that don't know, this allegory, the cave is, so there's these prisoners, they're, they're in this cave, and they're facing one direction at the wall, and there's a fire behind them, and they're in prison there. And uh, so these people behind them, or whoever's there, would use like these puppets, almost like this Muppet show going across, They'd, and it would cast, because there was a fire, it would cast this shadow up on the wall. And they thought this is what a real tree looked like, or real monsters. This is what they thought reality was was these shadows on the wall. They didn't know that they could just leave the cave and experience the real world for what it is. And so one, one of them broke free and gets out and sees the world, sees the sun, sees what, what real life is like, and he goes back in, and so he's trying to tell them, let's go, and, but they're too afraid to leave this bondage that they're in. I mean, think of the movie The Truman Show, just yet another spinoff of Plato's allegory of the cave, right? Where Jim Carrey is, is in this world and this world has been constructed around him. And over time, he starts to see things are, things are not really as it should be. Things are a little bit off and odd. And so he sets off on this quest to find out what is real and what is not. What is true and what's been fabricated. What part of my life is legit? And what part is just a complete fabrication 
what's real and what's the shadow on the wall? You see, what I love about Luke as we're going through this is Luke, Luke is definitely much, uh, almost like a historian. He wants, to, he wants to lay these things out. He went and got accounts of what happened. And he writes these things down meticulously so that we would come to know and we would believe that what we've seen and heard is, is true. And that we can have faith in that. And so Luke himself then, you know, he shares these things. And it says right here at the beginning of, of chapter 2. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And so he sets out this, this time. He's letting us know it's during this, this first census, during the reign of Caesar Augustus. So we know the, we have this time, this place, and he tells us that this is a real time, real place, real narrative. This is not just a story. This is not just a shadow cast upon the wall. This is the real deal because we're going to be talking about the birth of our real Savior, a true Savior, a Savior that will give us real joy and real peace. And so turn with me now to chapter 2, and we'll focus here. We'll read out loud verses 11 to 14. It says this, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Please pray with me. Father, I, I praise you for the opportunity to to stand before your people and to proclaim your word. But Lord, I ask that as we look at your word, we would not just be, we would not just hear your word, but that we would be doers of your word, that we would not just hear these things, but that we would reflect upon them, we would ponder them, we would cherish them, that they would, they would change us, that they would mold us, Father, that we, would, that we would be changed from one degree of glory to the next, that we would leave here, Father, loving you more, knowing you more, and ultimately, Father, that as we look at your word, that we would see that, that peace and joy come from you. Not just this, this fake peace and joy that's cast up like a shadow upon the wall, Lord, but that a true Christian joy and true Christian peace is possible. But it's only possible in you. We pray this all in your name. Amen. So as we go through this, we're going to break this down into two sections. We'll be looking at true Christian joy and then true Christian peace. And, and the one thing that I want us to get from this morning is this, that Jesus comes to give us joy and peace. That Jesus comes to give us joy and peace. And, and it sounds very simple, and it is to a degree. And yet, it's hard to find what is true joy, what is true peace, what is that joy and peace that have been fabricated that we have bought into? What is that joy and peace that has been presented to us by the world that the world views as joy and peace that we've grabbed onto and said, this is enough. This is sufficient. But when we see it for what it really is, we see that it's worthless. It's situational. It's temporary. Because Jesus comes to give us joy and peace. And we could find true Christian joy. 
What does it say here? Verse 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. I love that. So, and verse, sorry, verse 10. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. I, I bring you good news of great joy. So when we look at what does it mean for Christian joy, what is the basis of that joy? Well, it's the gospel. It's the good news. It's the gospel itself that, that once we were far off from God, that we were enemies of God. I mean, if Scripture talks about that there was this, this enmity, this tension, this division between us and God, it's because of our fallen nature. Because God is holy himself, he could not stand with an unholy people. And because of our first parents, because of our first parents, we have broken covenant with this God, with this holy and true God. And so we are far off. It says that we are enemies of God, that we, have this, we don't have this love for God. We don't cherish God with, with all of our affections. It says that they don't love God, but also says that we don't love his law. Those who are far off from God, there's this sense of lawlessness. I mean, even this, in, in the culture today, you see it. When you try to bring up what scripture says or going by the standard of, of, of God's word, culture pushes back and says, hold on, that's just, that doesn't seem very fair. That doesn't seem very right. What is it that you're telling me that, that God gets to set the standard and the rules for how we're supposed to live and how we are to interact and, and who we are to marry and who we're not? Or even where our sexual preference lies? Yes, Scripture itself points these things out. And yet the culture pushes against and says, no, I will be a law unto myself. I will do what I want when I want. And that sense has pervaded the church itself. Where individuals are rethinking and asking the question, is, is scripture really legitimate? Is it true? Is it trustworthy? Is it worthwhile? Has it, how many revisions has it gone through? Maybe someone had you know, a little pet peeve and they added that in there. Can we really believe it? How many scribes and how many times has it been rewritten? And can we really go through? And did, in the culture there, maybe it's a cultural thing. It wasn't meant to be just this for all people, but no, it was just for this culture and this time and in this place. And now, you know, scripture and revelation is progressive in nature. So as things change, then revelation changes. So our understanding of what scripture is saying and meaning must change, right? False. Wrong. God's word is sure. But the culture has pushed back on that and, and it is permeated within our church today that God's law is not good. But because of that, we could not, though, we did not and could not live perfectly by this law. And by breaking just one bit of it, deserve God's just wrath. And so when we talk about the gospel, that we're talking about this, this good news that we have been declared forgiven. That God himself came, put on flesh, that he died for us. But before he died for us, he lived for us. He lived a perfect life. That he upheld the law's demands. And that he died for our sins. He took on our punishment. And that we are declared righteous before him. And that not only that, but we're also then declared, we're adopted, brought into this family. And not just within the church, but I'm talking about that we're brothers and sisters. That we, are look, we look towards God and he says, you call me Abba Father. 
You are my child, and I love you. I care for you. I grab hold of you. I will never let you go. You are mine. And we're sanctified. So he declares that, and yet he doesn't leave us alone. Every step of the way, the Holy Spirit is there with us, convicting us, encouraging us, guiding us, helping us as we're, as we're going through this process of sanctification. We're putting off of the old self and, and, and grabbing onto this new life that we have in Christ, changing from one degree of glory to the next. But that grace of God that he himself is with us throughout this process, and one day we will be in glory with him, standing before him, proclaiming together, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. I mean, this is the good news. And for those of us that may have grown up in the church, sometimes we've lost sight of that. We've heard, what, we've heard the gospel over and over and over again. And we've understood that it's good news, but it should, though, it should, though, elicit so much more within us. Not fake and contrived and forced by any means. Please do not hear that. But this gospel should overtake us because the, the basis of our joy is the personal work of Jesus Christ, that he alone is worthy of our praise. He alone is that worthy son who had, he gave of himself, that he was the promised son, that he was the promised king down the Davidic line, it says here, that he is savior, that he is the redeemer, that he is Lord, he is sovereign over our lives. So when we talk about the basis of our joy, we're talking about the gospel we're talking about Jesus. But when we hear that word joy, oftentimes people think of it as happiness. Joy is not happiness. They are not interchangeable. See, it's not about just this outward expression of putting on a smile, putting on a content face. It's not situational. So that's the thing with happiness. Happiness comes and goes based upon the situation that one is in. External factors influence whether one is happy or not. Where joy is supposed to be something that wells up from within as one reflects and embraces and understands the good news of the gospel that we've been given and our salvation that we have in Christ. You see, joy can't be faked. Happiness can Poorly. Some people are poor at it. Some of you are better at faking happiness. And some of us have learned how to do it. We've learned how to do it within our family, just putting on a smile as strife exists. Some of us have learned how to, how to fake it in our marriage, where we act like everything's going okay, everything's fine, there's nothing wrong, nothing to see behind the curtain here. And yet, knowing the whole time this is just a facade. That's before us. Some of us are really good at pretending to be happy outwardly, but inside, struggling with depression and addiction, overcome with emotion and, and anxiety, having these feelings of regret and, and guilt, this sense of worthlessness, and yet on the exterior, we're really, really good at putting on that smile for the world to see. You see, it's not the same as happiness because joy flows from our union with Christ, our relationship with Christ. As we are with him and we know that he is with us, that, that there that will not be changed, that there is now no separation. We, we, it flows from this grace of Christ 
the forgiveness that we have, this mercy that we received, and our position in Christ, knowing that we are sons and daughters of the Most High King. So as we reflect on that, we see that the good news and the gospel, that joy flows from this union, this grace, and this, this position that we have in Christ, which should be flowing out. And this is where it's hard to fake what should be flowing out from, from an individual with true Christian joy is praise. Just praise. And I'm not talking about how one externally does it with just singing loud, hands in the air. No. There's this quiet praise and contentment in the midst of their circumstances, whatever's going on. I've had the privilege and joy of meeting saints that, that I've watched, I've said, man, how is it that they're still chugging along? How are you still moving forward? I don't understand this. I'm watching what's happening to you. And yet in the midst of it, there's this sense of praise for who God is. Being able to quietly say to themselves and out loud, just God is good all the time, despite what's happening around me, able to praise God in the midst of their situation, in the midst of their circumstance, in the midst of their trial. For those that have that true Christian joy, what should be overflowing out of them is this sense of compassion for others. Whether they believe or not. Because we ourselves should know where we were and what we were saved from. And who saved us. As we know and understand the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ, we have this patience and compassion for those around us who are still struggling in the midst, that are still struggling in their addictions, that are struggling in, in, in whatever's going on in their personal life, we should have a bit more grace and patience with them and compassion for them. Because if it was not but for the grace of God, we would still be there. And yet we forget that sometimes. But one that, an individual that has been captured by this joy, this joy of the gospel, understands that they were so undeserved for them and they have this understanding for those, and so they want to extend then more mercy and grace and forgiveness to those around them. Joy is not about the external, but it's this, this quiet assurance, this assurance of knowing one standing before their God, the forgiveness that they have in him, the position that they have in him. And that joy reflects itself and overflows its outwardly towards others. In praise, compassion, mercy, grace, forgiveness. That's when we know that joy is real and not just contrived. It's not just outward. And it's not just situational. But it's in all things, count it all, pure joy. What I love about, so Luke here talks about in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. I mean, there's nothing better in the middle of a sermon than a little bit of history, right? So we got Caesar Augustus here, and, and so Julius Caesar is assassinated, and the, the, the empire's thrown into this turmoil, right? There's just this upheaval, civil uh, unrest and, and strife, and so uh, Julius is, is assassinated, and then there's these three individuals that begin to rule. You got uh, Lepidus, you've got uh, Mark Antony, and Octavian. And these, through, these three uh, form the triumvirate. And so they're ruling over and they're sharing this power. So in theory, it all sounds right. 
Like it all sounds good. You know, three people sharing power. No one can get too big, you know, in their britches or whatever. Um, but yet, like we've seen, if you've watched The Office, you can't really have two bosses or two managers in the same office. Someone's going to, you got, someone's got to make a decision on what's going on, right? And so first then, uh, Lapidus, uh, Lapidus is, uh, he, he loses power in 36 BC. And then because Mark Antony's uh, relationship with Cleopatra, he becomes a threat then to Octavian. He, he feels like it's a threat. And so he attacks him, battles him, and uh, uh, Mark Antony loses in 31 BC. And so now you just have Octavian. And then finally in 27 BC, the Senate recognizes Octavian as Caesar Augustus. The one ruler gives him all this power and prestige that goes with it. Why do I share that? Because Caesar Augustus or Octavian was viewed as the emperor of peace. That as he came in, he, at his ascension to power, ushered in this, this time of, of peace and tranquility, of stability, whether it was, it was in politics and in trade, right? And so he was viewed as bringing in this reign of peace. And you've heard of the Pax Romana that went for 200 years, the peace of Rome. He was a great administrator that, that set things up. And so he's viewed as this. People are seeing and, and understanding because at this point he's already died. And he's got this moniker as, he, as bringing in this reign of peace and this emperor of peace. And yet then here, Luke writes, in those days, here we have Caesar Augustus, who's viewed as this emperor of peace, ushering in this reign of peace. And yet, verse 14, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Luke sort of tongue-in-cheek says, you think this guy had this reign of peace, you think that he is true peace, but yet he is a shadow cast upon the wall because only Jesus himself is our true peace. Only Jesus himself is the Prince of Peace. Only Jesus himself will usher in what real peace looks like in our lives and in our communities. Augustus is fake. He is a shadow. He is nothing. Embrace that which is real. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is well pleased. And so now we have this true Christian peace. But see, we have this view. There's this common view of peace that we have to deal with. We have this view within our culture, and maybe some of you have embraced this, that peace, though, is just this absence of conflict. As long as there's no conflict, then we must be at peace. Which, let me, explain, let me say something, at least my experience my experience as a young man growing up in a dysfunctional home, I'll tell you this right now, the absence of conflict never really equaled peace. It just meant it was going to be much more later. It just meant winter is coming sort of mentality. The absence of conflict does not equal peace. And so because of that, we view conflict. The common understanding is that conflict is, is unhealthy. And so when we have conflict in our marriage, we want to deal with that right away or just kind of sweep it away, just want to figure it out to get rid of this conflict instead of, instead of sort of rolling with it. So we view conflict as unhealthy, whether it's in marriage, in the church, or in our friendships. And so rather than, rather than dealing with it appropriately, we do some, we, we deal with it pretty unhealthy. And that's the word, appropriately. Conflict must be dealt with 
appropriately. Unfortunately, a lot of people deal with it in, in unhealthy ways, right? So when conflict comes up, they rather just avoid. They just avoid it. They don't talk about it. They don't deal with it. They just sweep it under the rug and say it was never there to begin with and just hope that it goes away. Others move into aggression. They're very aggressive in the midst of it where, no, 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 we must deal with this now in my way, in my time, and you must, we must come to the solution that I've already thought through for us. And so get in here and let's get through that. And they really kind of push and push and push and manipulate their way so that there's this fake sense of conflict resolution, just so they could feel like all is settled and all is good. Another unhealthy way is just blaming, blaming the other individual for all the conflict. Say, well, if you had just done this, I'm sorry, but, or I'm sorry, but, no, I'm going to own myself, but you did this, that, right? So they blame in those senses. And then others just pull the victim mentality. Why is everyone against me? Why does everyone push back against me? I've, I've left four different churches. All of them were unhealthy. They were unhealthy. I tried to fix them and give them the gospel, but I left all four because they're all against me. Sometimes you've got to realize it just might be you, but, but we have to deal with this appropriately. And that means in a healthy way, first, direct. Dealing with it head on with the individual. Oftentimes we fall into this, this mentality of, well, let me go ahead and talk about it with 20 other people. These are my support group individuals, and I'm going to let them all, all the, the issues that are going on and how they wronged me. But they're going to support me, pray for me, encourage me, um, and then I'll go ahead and talk to the person directly. No, you go talk to the individual directly, Matthew 18. Be direct. We deal with it in a healthy manner when we deal with it honestly, where we acknowledge here's where I'm at fault. I'm, I'm really sorry for this. Acknowledging that I might be wrong, that I have some part to blame in this, that it takes two to tango. It's, it's very rarely just one-sided in any situation. So we go directly, we go honestly, we come, we come humbly, humbly knowing maybe, well, maybe I am 90% of this. It's a rare time I'm 90%, right, Michelle? It's usually 20, 40. 20, wait, that's bad math. That was horrible. 20, 80? I don't know. That one caught me off guard there. But we acknowledge humbly, like, this, this, I have a lot to bear in this. I've done a lot of damage. I've hurt a number of people. I need to repent and confess that and own that. And number four, we come hopeful. Because the purpose of it is reconciliation. The purpose of conflict resolution is restoration. Is that as we deal with this, then we are restored yet again. The relationship is restored, whether it's in our marriage and in our friendships or within the church itself. And so we come hopeful of what God can do in, in my life and in theirs. And so there's this fake view of what peace is. But peace, peace is, is similar to joy in that it has its roots in the gospel, in what Jesus has done for us. I mean, we have this peace with God. Look at Romans 5.1. 
Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we have this justification of what God has done, and it's not about our works. It's not how hard that we push and we work to try to make it happen. It's not how perfect we try to look to the outside world. It's not the, the, fake, the fake happiness that we portray to our other brothers and sisters around us. All of that is just shadows cast upon the wall. But it's faith in who Jesus is and what he has done, the salvation that we have in him. And so we have this peace with God, not for anything that we've done, but in what everything he's done and we trust in the personal work of Jesus. But we also have this peace with others in Romans 12, 18. It says this. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. You know, we're called to live peaceably with each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. Not just here at Redeemer, but with other brothers and sisters in the Fox Valley and beyond. Despite denominational differences, despite some doctrinal differences, yes, there are essentials, but there's other fringe items that, despite those, we embrace others and we live at peace with others as brothers and sisters in Christ because our unity is not in what church we go to. Our unity is not in what denomination that we belong to. Our unity is not in what translation we read, right? Our unity is not by the color of our skin. Our unity is not whether we have these social justice programs or not. Our unity is only based upon the blood of Christ, and that is what unites us as believers, not just now, but the universal church. That's what unites us with believers in the past and the believers that will come after us. That's what unites all of us as brothers and sisters. And that's something is deep and profound and something that we have lost in our culture today and how we deal with other brothers and sisters, despite the little differences that we have with them. But we are called to live peaceably with each other as far as it is possible it is able to you. I can't force somebody else to live peaceably with me, but at least I know I could do my part. Or as my father used to always tell me as a kid, Jimmy, you can only clean your side of the street. That's all you could do, son. And there are times where living peaceably with others is cutting off those relationships because they are unhealthy for each other or for one. But we're called to have peace with God. We have this peace with God. We have this peace with others. And then we have this peace with ourselves. Philippians 4, 6 to 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I just love that. Do not be anxious about anything. We could take our requests to God. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, I just absolutely love this sense of this communion that we have with God. That Jesus himself, he came, he lived a perfect life, he died, he rose, he ascended and is right now interceding on our behalf. And part of that interceding is not just like these prayers and these supplications with thanksgiving, but it's not just like those things that we need, but it's also, but it's also praising for the relationship that we have with him. It's also praising for what he has done because those of us that are in Christ, we now have this 
no, we have no condemnation. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so we don't have to live with this ungodly guilt where we're just continually over and over and over again beating ourselves up over and over and over again for the things that we've thought, done, and said in the past. I don't know what it is, but I have this like, I can't I could compartmentalize, I guess, is the best way to put it. Before I came to know Jesus, like, I don't think about those sins, to be honest. Somehow I've told myself, like, I'm forgiven. Praise God, I didn't know any better. I was dumb, right? Like, I just didn't know. I didn't, you know, I was just ignorant of who God is and what he has, he has done. But everything after that, oh my gosh, my mind is just, it goes on fire from time to time. Because I, I sit there with this guilt and this shame of things that I've done and I've said and I've, and I've gone back to brothers, uh, uh, in, uh, brothers from the past and I've said, man, I remember that time. It, it eats me alive sometimes. I can't sleep at night. I just need to call you and say, I'm so sorry for this. And they're just telling me, brother, I've forgiven you. The Lord has forgiven you. Let it go. This is unhealthy. And yet we still do that. We still mind, we go over and over again, even though we know we have this forgiveness in Christ. Even though we have that, there is no condemnation. Because when I hold on to this ungodly guilt, I am showing my disbelief in the love and forgiveness of God. It's, all, it's, it's showing unbelief. That, you know what? God, you said you love me. You said you forgive me. But I'm going to hold on to this. And just because, and I'm going to beat myself up with it because I really don't believe that you truly love me because I am so pitiful. I truly don't believe that you have forgiven me because this is too heinous. Ungodly guilt just reflects a heart that has an unbelief in who God is and what he has done. And I must constantly repent of that, brothers and sisters. But some of us need to repent of avoiding some godly guilt. There are things that we've done and said and we've kind of swept it under and said, oh, that was, eh, I don't need to apologize for that. I was just joking it wasn't that serious. Was it really that hurtful? Was it really out of bounds? Some of us are on the other end of the spectrum where there's some repenting that needs to happen and we've been avoiding that for some time. And I want to encourage you as I encourage myself, press in, press into God and, and ask him, Holy Spirit, show me, show me those areas. Show me those, short, those, those weak spots. Show me those areas that, that I need to go and repent to my other brothers and sisters in. Change me. This godly, some of us need a bit of godly guilt to repent, to confess and repent. See, Jesus comes to give us joy and peace. It's not just this fake superficial joy and peace that's like a shadow up on the wall. But it's real. And it's something that should over, that as, as we embrace it and it captivates us, it should overflow in praise and compassion for others. I like at the end here, chapter two, I think it's uh, 20, yeah? And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they heard and seen as it, as it had been told them. So they hear from the angel, they go and they visit and they, they share these new, the news. And they, so as they're leaving, they leave 
glorifying and praising God for all that they've seen and heard. You know, when we have this joy and we have this peace, it should elicit, like we said, praise, glorifying and praising God, glorifying him knowing that he is the only one that is worthy, Jesus is the only one that is worthy, he is the only one that could accomplish this work, praising him for what he has done in us and through us, for all they have seen and heard. As we enter into this, actually we're ending pretty soon, this Advent season, we come to Christmas and into 2022. I need to be reminded again of those things that I've seen and heard. What Jesus has done in my life, what Jesus has done in your life, what I've seen him do in my family's life. To be reminded of the salvation that we have, the care that we have in him, how he, he, he just... He's been taking care of us and he's been encouraging us that he's been convicting us and he's been changing us. But I've also watched others. I've seen you grow in your faith. I've seen a number of you, number of you take large steps forward in your faith. I've seen others come to know Jesus. So I want to be reminded of all that I've seen and heard because though, when we start to lose sight of that, we become complacent with it. Then we lack that walking away, glorifying and praising for what he is, for all that we've seen and heard. A life that embraces the gospel, a life that embraces the good news, has true Christian joy, has true Christian peace. And they can't help, they can't help but walk away glorifying, praising God, and I would even add, sharing with those around him all that God has done. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you again for your word. I thank you for the beauty of it. I thank you for how convicting and encouraging it is. But Lord, I thank you for the joy and peace that we have only in you. That at times we try to fake it, we try to make it happen, we try to force things, but Lord, we know that, that all that is but a shadow cast upon the wall and we want to come out of the cave and, and behold you. Behold you and your glory. Jesus, thank you. Father, we know that our salvation is only in you and I pray, I pray that we would just re-embrace that there would be this, this vigor among us as a people of God, to, to glorify and praise you for all that we've seen and heard. We ask this all in your name. Amen.